Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good today. Uh, I'm in a pretty good mood. It's sunny outside. Smoke has cleared out. Yes. We are not in uh, what I'll call like danger zone for smoke, but it has been smoky here in Alberta. Yeah, it's it's been, to be honest, pretty mild compared to the, like, orange sky apocalypse that, like, engulfed California. The entire West Coast? Yes. Uh, but, you know, it was noticeable. How are you doing today? Doing all right. Working my way through. I'm hoping that tonight's movie will be a real treat that we can both enjoy. Um, yeah, I hope we don't finish too early. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, uh, that was a joke because today's movie comes from Finland. Uh, just a a quick piece of housekeeping for people who might not know. This episode number is 158B because this film is from 1952. So we are heading back to the films from 1952 Mm -hmm. and slotting this in at 158B. Yeah, and this was kind of like a fallow period for horror a bit. Like, I think we only had one other movie in all of 1952, which was The Black Castle, Universal's follow-up to The Strange Door, neither of which we ended up deciding were horror, and we ended up bumping off the list anyways. So, if this movie ranks, that's going to make it the only 1952 movie on the list. Um, But once 1953 hit, we kind of got a lot of horror movies. Yeah. But this is also our first Finnish movie. That's right. We haven't said what the movie is yet. It's Valkoinen Peora, which is the White Reindeer. So this is our first Finnish film. And because we've never been to Finland yet, uh, it's probably best to give some historical, cultural background. Sure. Uh, So, Sarah, what do you have for us? Well, uh, for people who don't know, Finland neighbors Norway, Sweden, and Russia, where, like, Norway and Sweden and then Finland kind of have, like, these three prongs Mm -hmm. off of, like, a tip of Russia, Mm -hmm. Um, Finland is the one that's closest to main Russia. Right. The place where the film The White Reindeer takes place is in the Lapland region, which is the northernmost part of Finland. Um, So if you think of Finland as like a long strip, it's like the most northern part that is like right next to Norway, Sweden, and Russia. Mm -hmm. Just kind of sandwiched all up in there. Starting in the 13th century, Finland was considered part of the Kingdom of Sweden, until it was ceded to Russia in 1809 when it became the Grand Duchy of Finland. Uh, It was mainly autonomous, though considered part of the Russian Empire. In the 1800s is when uh, increased importance on Finnish cultural traditions and folklore and language really grew, um, including the publication of a collection of epic poems uh, called Kalevala Mm -hmm. by Elias Lonra in 1835. 
With the fall of the Russian Empire in 1917, Finland declared independence. Uh, they had their own civil war of the Red Guard versus White Guard, um, socialists versus not socialists, uh, with the White Guard winning. The result of which meant that Finland had an all-right relationship with the West and a lot of tension with the USSR. Now we're in 1952. The years leading up to 1952 have been tumultuous yes. for Finland. Starting with the Winter War, where the Soviet Union invaded Finland in November 1939, um, after World War II began. That war ended with the Moscow Peace Treaty in 1940, and that war actually led to the USSR being expelled from the League of Nations. Yeah, because it was like an unprovoked invasion out of nowhere. Yeah, they were like, Germany's doing things, we're going to do things too. Yeah, the Finnish like, repelled Russia out of Finland, despite, you know, Russia being Russia. Because they did it in winter. Right, but, like, you'd (laughs) think that Russia would know that strategy. Um, Because the way that Russia was getting into Finland was through Lapland. Right. The coldest part of Finland. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, it's very much like a, a United States in Vietnam situation, except replace, like, the jungle with the icy tundra. <laughs> Next came the Continuation War, where Finland and uh, <coughs> Nazi Germany <clears throat> yeah. teamed up to invade the USSR as part of Operation Barbarossa, with Finland allowing Nazi Germany to use their country as the jumping-off point for mm-hmm. Operation Barbarossa. The Continuation War was from 1941 to 1944, beginning with a lot of pushing into the USSR and then a lot of pushing back into (laughs) Finland. Um, It did not really go well. There was a ceasefire in September 1944, and as part of that ceasefire, the USSR was like, hey, Finland, you need to get the Nazis out of your place. Mm. Get the Germans out. Which led to the Lapland War, where the Finnish forces, along with the USSR, pushed Nazi Germany out of Finland into Norway. The Lapland War occurred from September to November 1944 and kind of devastated the region. Mm. Um, Because as Germans were retreating, they were doing the scorched earth uh, strategy as well as uh, leaving a ton of landmines. The capital in Lapland, uh, Rovaniemi, uh, 90% of it was burned to the ground. Um, the entire region had uh, nearly 50% of their buildings destroyed, railways and roadways demolished, bridges, phone and telegram lines broken. There was a lot of destruction in the region, but all of the civilian population in Lapland had been evacuated beforehand. Mm. So, you know, one positive side. Sure. But these people returning to their homes saw nothing but destruction. The reconstruction of Lapland would continue up until the early 50s, though some things like the railway wouldn't be completely rebuilt until 1957, and demining operations would not be complete until 1973. Yeah, landmines are a bitch. Part of this reconstruction included industrialization within Lapland, um, including establishing hydroelectric dams, and mining in the area. 
So Lapland is the northernmost part of Finland, the coldest part. In 1950, the population of Lapland was um, just under 170,000. For context, the entire population of Finland in 1950 was around 4 million. Okay. Which means that 0.04% of the population lived in Lapland. Within this small population, an even smaller part of that population include the indigenous Sami. Mm -hmm. Um, And I bring up the Sami because the white reindeer supposedly comes from Sami myth. But I'll go into that later, whether that's accurate or not. Okay. Now, in the northernmost part of Lapland, which again is the northernmost part of Finland, Mm -hmm. is the Sami domicile area, which is a very, like, intimidating name for what is basically an area that is set aside for the Sami indigenous tribes. Okay, yeah, I mean, I can understand that. Yeah. Now, that's just in Finland. Um, The area where Sami live uh, are outside of Finland as well. Yeah, they're in, like, Norway and Sweden and stuff too, right? Yeah, again, still, like, you know, right in that area that gets sandwiched all together. Um, But it includes, um, like you said, Norway, Sweden, and then the part of Russia where there is the Kola Peninsula. Mm -hmm. Um, The majority of Sami actually live in Norway and Sweden, so not Finland, but that's besides the point. For Sami, reindeer play a major role in their culture, including reindeer husbandry. Mm, So, um, sort of reindeer herding. You know, the reindeer aren't domesticated, but... You know, you do some herding of them and use them for a major source of protein, for their furs, everything like that. Fun fact, that's legally recognized now uh, in like the Scandinavian countries, with um, reindeer herding being legally reserved for only Sami people in these regions. Okay. So the Lapland War destroyed pretty much everything. Right. And that includes pretty much everything for like Sami homes and villages. Um, Rebuilding for the Sami was very slow, hindered by policies that, like, Sweden, Norway, Finland, all kind of had similar but different policies that were like... For example, Norway had a policy that said that, um, yeah, the Sami can live here, but um, if the land's good, we get it. Right. Sure. (laughs) Sami rebuilding efforts were also hindered with the growth in industrialization seen in Lapland and this industrialization that prioritized rebuilding the economy or Mm. like energy resources over Sami land and water rights. I have to imagine it's probably frustrating. I mean, it's probably frustrating to just be an indigenous people's, you know, entirely, but it has to be frustrating to be a people whose traditional territory is now spread across, like, three or four different nations. So, like, to you, it makes sense as, like, a continuous area of land that your people live in, but then, like, you're actually in, like, three to four different countries, so you're actually under, like, several different laws and, like, sets of, like, rules for what you can and can't do. Yeah. I mean, you see that with Canada and the United States, with the... For example, the Blackfoot having cultural lands that kind of go from, like, Manitoba, uh, Saskatchewan, 
Alberta down into the States. Yeah, into Montana and stuff, yeah. Yeah, but that's two countries, as you say. Yeah, it's <laughs> Not just... Not three or four <laughs> that are constantly warring. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, now, things do get better for the Sami. Um, for example, in 1952, Sweden uh, established a Sami radio station that was by and for Sami. I couldn't confirm whether it was in their specific language, but still kind of neat. Support for the recognition of Sami land and water rights really grew in the 70s and 80s, as I think, like, recognition of indigenous peoples around the world, like, at least, like, what I know from Canada, kind of increased during this time. Yeah. Um, In August 1986, the Sami people established their national anthem and flag. Neat. Now, the reason why I hesitate to say that the white reindeer myth that we will see in this movie comes from the Sami is because I couldn't find a lot of information about Sami myth. Sure. By and large, um, online. Part of that might just be, you know, a lack of resources about it in general. Or in English. In English, true. Some of the sources that I did find did not seem to be fully, how do I say this? Authentic. Hmm. Um, with some places just kind of blurring together um, Celtic myth mm. and, like, Norse myth and then Sami myth altogether. Huh. Uh, which, yeah. But here's what I was able to kind of glean. So, Sami religion was based in shamanism, where uh, the shaman has a connection to the spirit world. They have polytheism with animism, meaning that, you know, everything, Thing has a spiritual essence. Right. And you have, like, deities who are, you know, animals, right? Yeah. Um, and kind of, like, sometimes a, a half-beast, half-humanoid kind of creature. Right. For the Sami, the universe has three worlds. Um, there's the upper, uh, which is kind of characterized by warmth and life. It's where gods live. Um, and... Uh, is characterized by the color white. Okay. There's the middle world where humans live, characterized by the color red, probably because of blood. Um, And then the lower world, you know, the underworld, characterized by the color black, um, represents the north, cold. And this is also where animals and mythic animals live. Okay. These mythic animals included seal, otter, bear, and reindeer. Um, the reindeer is actually so integral to all of this that um, the shaman's drum, which is their main instrument of doing their practice, uh, is made from a reindeer hide. Gotcha. Um, the white reindeer is considered the most mythic. Um, white reindeer do occur in nature, but um, they are very, very rare. They'd be like an albino reindeer. Right. Um, if you catch one, you can get luck and prosperity. And part of the reason why white reindeer are considered most mythic is it's pretty central in their creation myth mm. um, of the of a white reindeer becoming the land and the sea and everything. I also looked into examples of shapeshifters sure. in Sami myths because um, I know that there is kind of a, a shape-changing element to the plot in this film. The only bit of information about something like that that I could find was, again, from a source that I could not, like, completely verify except through tidbits here and there throughout 
the internet. Right, sure. I just want to put a disclaimer on there because there's a historical practice of all indigenous myths and cultures can kind of be all mixed in together into a melting <laughs> pot. Um, and so that's why I'm trying to be as specific as possible. Now, the only mention of a reindeer shapeshifter came from the Kuala Sami tribes, which are the Sami that are kind of in the Russian area in the Kola Peninsula. And this is the myth of Miandash. Now, the myth of Miandash goes that his mother was a human shaman, and she turned herself into a reindeer to go and get busy with a normal reindeer. Mm-hmm. And nine months later, he was Miandash. Gotcha. They lived in... Uh, that third world where there's like the mythic animals inside the tent where they lived, Miandash was human. But as soon as he walked outside of the tent, he became a reindeer. Okay. He wanted a human wife when he grew up. Um, so his mother arranged that. Uh, and some of Miandash's children became reindeer that would make up the herds. And then some would become the Kuala Sami people. Okay. So kind of a a little bit of a creation myth going on there, uh, where, like, again, showing how integral the reindeer are to their way of life. Yeah, by, like, literally establishing, like, a kinship. Exactly. But that's the only kind of shape-shifting myth, even not around reindeer, that I could find. Yeah, and you mentioned, like, how, like, exalted the white reindeer is specifically, and how, like capturing one gets you good luck and things like this. And this film's really about like the, the, the not good luck, the bad luck that can come from killing a white reindeer. Mm -hmm. So as this is our first Finnish film, um, I thought I'd talk a bit about the Finnish film industry and like the nature of that. So Finland got kind of a slow start to cinema compared to other nations. Um, Films started being shown in Finland in the 1890s, same as other European countries, and feature films were being made there as early as 1907, but attempts to kind of get like a actual Finnish film industry with regular production going were largely curtailed by Finland's political situation. When they were part of the Russian Empire up to 1917, there were there were long stretches of time where Russia said, like, you guys aren't allowed to make movies. They didn't really want Finland expressing its own, like, individual cultural identity. Sure. Um, like, in the mid-1800s is when the rise of, like, Finnish nationalism kind mm. of was coming about. So I can understand why the Russian Empire would try to stamp out another expression of that. Yeah. And then, of course, um, after 1917... They were no longer part of the Russian Empire because of the Russian Empire becoming the USSR. But as you mentioned, they had their own civil war in Finland, so there wasn't really a lot of like time for making movies then. So it was really after that that the industry started to really develop. In 1919, uh, the first major movie studio in Finland was founded. Uh, it was called Schwoman Filmikuvamo, which means Finnish film studio. Sure. Uh... Accurate. Yes. Uh, by 1921, it was referred to as Schwomi Filmi, uh, which just means Finland film. Sure. Uh, Schwomi Filmi was founded by writer-director-producer Erki Karu, 
And Karu was the most significant director of the silent era in Finland. And Suomi Filmi had a near monopoly on the industry at that time. All of the movies were being shot in Helsinki, uh, the capital of Finland. But the most popular movies were rural stories that appealed to the Finnish farming communities. Films that had urban settings were considered to be too European in style sure. and not like expressing like the unique Finnish cultural identity. That was the stuff that really was most successful with the masses. Competitors uh, to Shwomi Filmi tended to arise, produce one or two movies, and then disappear. The rise of sound film coincided with the Great Depression in Finland, and Shwomi Filmi began to kind of flounder financially in the early 1930s. So Erki Karu was ousted as head of the company, replaced by his longtime assistant director, Risto Orko. Karu responded to this by founding Schwoman Filmitiolisus, or Finnish Film Industry. <laughs> uh, Very creative with these names. Yeah, uh, which was typically just referred to as SF. Uh, which then became the first major competitor to Shwomi Filmi. So the two major studios of the Finnish golden age of film in the 1930s were Shwomi Filmi and SF. Yep, not yep. confusing at all. Yep. Uh, in the 1930s, Finland was producing about 20 films a year. That's not bad. Yeah, and uh, it was considered to be like a, a great golden age for Finland film. Uh, they kind of had like a mini Hollywood going on there with their two big movie studios and then many small indie studios making Poverty Row-style films outside the Shwomi Filmi SF rivalry. Sure. Uh, the Winter War and the Continuation War in the 1940s slowed down film production uh, somewhat. Understandably. Uh, but by the 1950s, the industry was still going strong with the emergence of the third major studio, Fanata Filmi, which was formed from the merger of several of the small indie film studios. Okay. At least they don't have the initials SF yes. again. <laughs> yeah. So, the White Reindeer, or Valkoinen Piora, is a Shwomi Filmi release produced by Arna Tarkas, who was a writer-director-producer-actor who wrote 35 films and directed 33 at a rate of up to five a year. However, the creative impetus for the film came from its director and its star, husband and wife team Eric Bloomberg and Miryami Kuoshmanen. Born in Helsinki in 1913, Bloomberg was a cinematographer who then directed, like, documentary shorts on the side while, you know, shooting bigger movies for other people. Um, he did a lot of these documentary shorts, including With the Reindeer in 1947, which was an ethnographic piece on the Sami reindeer herders. Oh, cool. Yeah, so he already kind of had experience filming among that community and uh, learning about that community and documenting them. He married Miryami Kuoshmanen in 1939, Born in 1915, she appeared in 24 films from 1937 to 1956. Uh, the two had four children together, 
and they remained married until Koshmanen's sudden death from a brain hemorrhage in 1963. Shit. Yeah. So at the time that this movie's production began, Bloomberry was just a director of documentary shorts, but he was looking to expand into directing feature films. Um, and it was Koshmanen who came up with the idea for the story of the White Reindeer. Uh, so the couple would co-write the screenplay together. Cool. And then Bloomberry co-produced in addition to directing as well as handling cinematography and editing, while Koshmanen did the film's costuming and makeup. A little bit of an indie feel going on here. Yes. Uh, the film's budget, I guess, was pretty small. And so the husband and wife kept costs down by basically doing... It themselves. Yes. The White Reindeer's score is by Einar Englund, who was a major Finnish composer. Very, like, highly respected, acclaimed, big deal composer. Um, but he always felt sidelined by mainstream Finnish music. Why? I guess because, like, he was a native Swedish speaker and felt like he was always, like, kind of an outsider to, like, mainstream Finnish music. But he was, like, highly acclaimed as a Finnish composer. So I don't know if he just had, like, a real bad case of imposter syndrome his whole life. Maybe. Uh, he was born in 1917, and he fought in the Continuation War, where a hand injury almost ended his musical career before it could begin. His first pieces after the war showed him to be, like, a master composer at age 30. Uh, his first symphony, people remarked, like, oh, this doesn't sound like someone's first symphony. This sounds like a masterpiece. Um, and he continued to improve from there, composing many symphonies throughout his career. When you hit success so early, I find that for those people, they do tend to have some imposter syndrome. Mm. His score is a big part of The White Reindeer um, because the film has like long silent stretches that are just carried by the music. Interesting. Released on July 25th, 1952, the movie won several accolades at the Yussi Awards, which are like Finland's Oscars. Uh, it won Best Cinematography, Best Actress, and Best Music. Awesome. It was also entered in competition at the 1953 Cannes Film Festival, where the Jean Cocteau-led jury that year awarded it Best Fairy Tale Film, uh, which is high praise coming from the guy who made La Bella La Bette. Yes. When it was released in the U.S. in 1956, it won the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Film. Damn. I'm surprised we didn't hear of it before then. Yeah, so it seems to have fallen into obscurity in later years, like after the 1950s. Like, you got all this acclaim, and then, like, nobody talked about it for years. Um, and it was just kind of like, you know, it got released on VHS in Finland, but, like, was really forgotten otherwise. And its rediscovery in recent years seems to be due to its place as one of the earliest examples of folk horror, uh, which is a subgenre that's currently undergoing a lot of critical attention. Yeah, thanks to A24. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So with the popularity of, you know, movies like The Witch. The Vavitch? And Midsummer. Midsummer. Yes. Um, people are going back and looking for, like, earlier examples of folk horror, and in terms of film, this is, like, one of the earliest. 
So, the National Audiovisual Institute of Finland gave the film a 4K restoration in 2016, and in 2019, it was released on Blu-ray by Eureka as part of their Masters of Cinema series, which is sort of like a European counterpart to the Criterion Collection. So, yeah, the rediscovery of this movie has been pretty recent, um, but, like, has garnered it, you know, a renewed critical appreciation. Cool. I'm pretty excited. Yeah, so am I. Well, folks, hopefully you can watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The White Reindeer from 1952, directed by Eric Blomberry. See you on the other side, everybody. And welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Valkoinen Peora from 1952, directed by Eric Blumberry, uh, and that's The White Reindeer in English. Sarah, what did you think of this movie? This is a really good movie, <laughs> and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I had a feeling you would. What, are you some kind of witch? No. <laughs> no, I just have, like, a decent feel for what kinds of stories will appeal to you. <laughs> uh, why don't you tell us about what the movie is about? So the film opens with um, a woman wandering the tundra, um, and there's some singing voiceover that is almost like a narrator. The singer is telling us about this woman that we see uh, wandering the tundra at night, um, about her unknowingly being a witch and uh, being unknowing about the evil in her belly. This woman prays to the stone god in order to survive wandering, and we see that there are like wolves closing in. She gives birth to a baby in the snowbank, and eventually finds her way to some shelter where there's a family inside. The woman dies, but the baby survives, and the presumption is that the baby is adopted by this family. I interpreted the opening a little bit differently. Okay. Um, in that I thought the song was about the girl like the baby who is born. I thought the song was sort of giving us the overview of what the story is going to be about rather than directly narrating what we were literally seeing on screen. Mm -hmm. Because everything that she says in the song applies to the lead character, who is this baby when she grows up, uh, in the movie with praying to the stone god. And then especially when she talks about how the white doe is brought down by cold iron at the end of the sure. song, and that's not how the mother dies. I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to assume that it's narrating to you rather than foretelling. What I got out of the song is that our lead character is a witch and was born a witch, but did not know that uh, growing up. Yeah, um, but almost yeah. like a Harry Potter situation. Right, yeah, like an evil Harry Potter situation. <laughs> Um, but the key thing here, I think, for later developments in the film is that, yeah, her mother was chased down by, by wolves uh, before dying. This baby becomes the grown-up Perita. She's happy. She meets a handsome man named Aslak. 
uh, and they fall in love and get married. Yeah. At the start of the movie here, we get the sense that Perita is like a very um, vivacious, like energetic young woman. Um, she takes part in sled races, which like she seems to be the only girl taking part. So I kind of gather that she's like a bit of a tomboy. And yeah, in fact, she falls in love with Aslak like in the aftermath of like racing him in like a sled race. And she's beating him. Yeah, exactly. It's dope. Yeah. So like you get the sense that she's like a very like forceful, energetic young woman. And it seems like it's going to be the perfect fairy tale. Except, oops, <laughs> this is a horror movie. <laughs> so Aslak is a reindeer herder. And as part of that job, um, he goes away for weeks on end, taking the herd to areas where they can find some grass under the snow. And Prita gets a little lonely. It's the night before he's going to go, and she's like, Hey, honey buns. But he rolls over. He's, uh, he's tired. We do see that Prita does get, like, some flirty glances from other men. And she enjoys them, but she's faithful to her husband. Yeah, you get the sense that, like, you know, as much as she fell in love with Aslak... Like, the life of the reindeer herder's wife just sitting in the cabin alone doing absolutely nothing for weeks on end, waiting for your husband to come home for, like, once or twice a month, and then he's too tired to even have sex with you is, like, not acceptable. Yes. She, uh, her sex drive is a little, is a little higher than his, I think. Yeah. Prita want to get some. Before Aslak goes, he leaves her with a white reindeer calf for a pet, and it's super cute. <laughs> but as the days turn into weeks, she gets lonelier and lonelier, um, because it's just like a barren wasteland. There's not even, like, neighbors she can go hang out with. So she seeks out a shaman. Basically, from what I could gather, um, to have Aslak fall so in love with her, he'll never want to leave. Yeah. It's just that... <laughs> It's one of those, like, be careful what you wish for kind of situations. It's absolutely be careful what you wish for. It's also one of those, like, word your wish. Very Precisely, yeah, kind of situations. Yeah. This shaman is like, oh, you women, always wanting a man. Well, let me pull up some stuff into my cauldron. Yeah, he makes her, he makes her like an aphrodisiac potion. Yeah, he's right? making her like a love potion. With like herbs and spices and moose testicles. Yes. Um, always need those moose testes, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he's making this and um, he begins drumming his uh, shamanic drum and he says that uh, with this, no reindeer herder will be able to resist you. Right, which is like a little broader than, than her husband. And in order to fully enact this, you must sacrifice the first living thing you find when you go back home to the stone god. Mm -hmm. So as he begins beating the drum, and there's like this like uh, bone on the drum that's bouncing with the beat, Perita's eyes go wide, and she's almost in like a trance, and her hand reaches out for the drum. The shaman stops beating, and her hand is on the drum, and it continues beating, as you can see, with the bone jumping up and down. It's a really cool moment. The shaman begins freaking out. He's like, a witch! A witch! Oh no! And, like, fades to black. Prita gets home, and Aslak is there with the calf, and 
he's he managed to get like a couple days off so he's <laughs> here visiting and she's yeah. like oh this is great maybe i won't have to do a sacrifice but then he leaves again and she's like man guess i gotta sacrifice this calf yeah the white reindeer was the first thing she saw on the way home so she takes the calf to the stone god altar which looks like a large stone that's kind of like stonehenge style like like a yeah monolith that's the word and it has all of these um antlers reindeer antlers uh scattered throughout and what i read about Sami people um, is that this was kind of common that you would leave offerings to where these gods might be. Right. The monolith also has like antlers. <laughs> yeah, there's antlers right at the top of the monolith. It's it's a pretty cool visual. Mm-hmm. She sacrifices the calf and then gets these weird visions of a fully grown white reindeer going across the tundra plains and. Um, reindeer herders uh, chasing after it, um, and she faints. Um, and then we hear the shamans uh, Don't feed it after midnight. Exactly. Uh, no herder will be able to resist you, kind of flying. I'm glad we did the research we did because I feel like the key thing here is that her bad luck is that the first thing she saw was a white reindeer. Because like with the white reindeer being this like the most specialist of all reindeers and like if you catch it you get good luck and all this stuff it feels like the key moment where this all goes wrong is that she kills a white reindeer like yes. like maybe if she had run into like you know a, a a sparrow on the way home things wouldn't have gone as bad for her you know <laughs> maybe after all of this she goes to find the herd to find aslak um to basically see like did this work? Mm-hmm. Now, he's gone off tracking um, a wolverine with uh, a fellow herder. Right. I'm sure that'll go well for him. <laughs> I didn't know we were in Canada. Yeah, exactly. Logan's not going to be happy about this. Yeah, no kidding. And that night, as she is staying the night with the herders, um, because it got dark, uh, she transforms into a white reindeer. One of the herders sees her and goes to track her to capture her, and... Uh, she leads him into what we find out is later known as Evil Valley. <laughs> uh, so the perfect, the perfect spot for this. Um, basically, he gets a rope around her antlers, pulls her in, and drags her down, which we see, have seen is like the way that you get a reindeer down. Mm-hmm. But then suddenly she turns back into Perita, and she's laughing, and the guy's like, oh, hey, a lady, sweet, and goes like kiss her and she attacks him because suddenly she's a vampire yep with the teeth and everything yeah we don't actually get to see any on-screen violence like it's definitely a situation where like you know he's going in for the kiss like oh we're gonna make out we go bone in the snow and then she's like smiles at him and has the fangs and then we cut to like a shot of the snowy plains and hear him scream yeah yeah I mean, I think it's dope. Oh, it's oh yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. Um, it would have been cool to get, like, I don't know, in my opinion, I, it would have been cool to get, like, a splatter of blood against the snow or something. Sure. This guy's found, and people are like, yeah, he was attacked. I don't know what happened. Then a second herder is drawn off and killed, also in Evil Valley, in the same way. Now there's rumors of, okay, 
this white reindeer is bewitched. When they keep finding the bodies, the only tracks around are reindeer tracks. But, like, just to, like, <laughs> to emphasize... Reindeer are prey animals. They are not predators. They can't rip a man to shreds. They don't have fangs. So everyone's like, okay, if a reindeer is killing them, it's got to be a witch reindeer. Yeah, because it's more like reindeer can gore you, Mm -hmm. but these men are more than gored. Yeah, they've been like bitten on the throat. Yeah, we never get to see one of the victim's faces, but everyone's reaction makes it clear that it's very grotesque. Yeah. It's, It's not just a goring. Yeah. So with rumors of a bewitched white reindeer, um, people are like, oh, like, your gun won't do anything against it. Like, you, you have to do something with, like, iron or something, because only iron can kill a witch. Only cold iron. I mean, it's the tundra, so yeah. the iron's going to be cold. Right, but it's like an interesting... Um... It's because of the frostbite that comes after the wound. Yeah, I guess. Um, and this one man, this one herder, has a gun, and he's like, nah. My, me and my trusty gun here. We'll, we'll be fine. I feel like this is probably a good moment to interject and say this movie's set in 1952. Yeah, it's set in contemporary times. Without the gun, you might not be able to tell, except for maybe the style of the houses, because they're like log houses. And they have like, you know, modern windows. And like, I think in some of the shots I remember almost seeing like they have like some telephone wires or, or something. Yeah, but right? no one, like, picks up a telephone is no. what I mean, right? Yeah. Like, it's not, like, explicit. Yeah. It, which gives this like, kind of timeless feel to it, which I liked. I think the guy with the gun, just by judging from his gun having and his not believing the old, like, elder Sami people and also the way he was dressed, and I think maybe there's even a line of dialogue to this effect, but he's like... Calling him a southerner. Yeah, so he's like a Finnish guy who's moved up north to Lapland. He's an outsider. Yeah. And he's like, no, my gun will get it. Then he sees the white reindeer and he's like, dope, I'll prove it all to you guys. So he goes after and follows the reindeer to Evil Valley. And just as he goes to shoot, the um, gunpowder basically backfires into his face. And so he, he's dazed, and he can see a woman laughing at him where the white reindeer used to be. She doesn't kill him. He just goes off wandering, kind of blinded mm-hmm. um, and stunned. He's found and brought back to the village. Uh, so he can see, but he, he's seemingly traumatized almost. Meanwhile, Perita is getting very afraid of herself. The way she's behaving is almost like she isn't really sure what she's fully capable of. Almost like she's almost not fully in control of this other side of her. Yeah. Um, And there are times where, you know, it's almost like she doesn't recall what happens. Except she does remember the man with the gun. I think the impression I got was like she remembers what she's done. Because she she knows enough to be afraid that everyone's out to get the white reindeer, right? But she's definitely not, like, the same person in terms of, like, agency. Like She's growing way more timid. Um, and then she looks in the mirror for her reflection, and it's much more of, like, an evil, uh, full of agency kind of uh, reflection. Yeah, she basically, like, has three forms. Like, there's mm-hmm. ordinary girl Perita who 
like feels guilt and remorse about all the dead people in the village. Uh, and then there's the white reindeer. And then there's vampire Perita, who is like, om nom nom. <laughs> I hunger. During this time, um, she almost attacks Aslak, who's come back, because it's a dangerous time to be herding reindeer. Um, she stops herself, though. Um, and there's a party at the village where she's having fun and laughing, and the man who had the gun blow up in his face sees her and hears her, and he's like, Witch! And chases after her with a burning log, just grabs the first thing he can and chases after her. Um, he's stopped and restrained, uh, but she's clearly very scared, both of like herself and uh, retribution. Next, we see what I believe is a Lutheran marriage, and the reason I believe it's Lutheran is for uh, people up in Lapland, the uh, majority are Lutheran. Yeah. And it's quite fun. I, I like this sequence. She is like in the background, um, kind of uh, not in focus in the shot. The shot is focused on the groom and the bride, and the, the groom is, just keeps like looking back like he can feel someone staring at him and when he does look back it's Perita just staring at him not singing along with whatever hymn everyone's singing just looking right at him mm -hmm. with hungry eyes yeah and he has a very hard time looking away yeah after the wedding they see the white reindeer and the groom is so caught up he's like I gotta I gotta go after this and his now wife is like, please don't, everyone's died. He's like, no, I, I must. He goes off and he's found dead. And that's kind of the last straw for this village. They're like, okay, time to get down to business. They start crafting these uh, iron spears, basically. Because as previously stated, only cold iron can kill a witch. Yeah, luckily, uh, you know, unlike, say, a silver bullet, I feel like it's a lot easier to, like, mass craft a bunch of cold iron spears and, like, give them out to every man in the village. Yeah. It's like if one of those angry mobs in, like, a Universal Monster movie, like, all had, like, you know, rifles with silver bullets in them. Yeah. So the town is now after her. Um, she changes in the middle of the day, uh, almost, like, out of her control. And so everyone's after her. Um, she's, like, running through the village as the reindeer, and this old woman whips out a knife and, like, throws it at her mm -hmm. and gets her in the breast. But she's okay. She hides from the men in person form, and she's like, everything's crumbling down. She goes to see the shaman to be like, dude, what the fuck did you do to me? When we get to the shaman's house, it's, like, fully covered in snow, and we get a shot inside of him being long dead. So I suspect he was her first victim. Hmm. That's not really what I got from that, but that's an interesting take. Yeah. I just kind of assumed he had frozen to death in the meantime, because, like... It's winter. Yeah, and, like, maybe part of, like, whatever curse the stone god put on her for, like, sacrificing a white reindeer, like... Went back on him, too? Went back on him, too, because he's the one who set it in motion kind of thing. Sure. Um, speaking of the stone god, next she goes back to the altar to be like, Please, take back your magic. Like, I don't want this anymore. And she turns back into the reindeer. So she frantically is running across the tundra. The herders and villagers are after her. And eventually it's just Aslak 
who's after her. They're in Evil Valley, and he throws his spear, and it gets her. And she's lying there in person form, dead. And he is like, yeah, I got her. Oh, shit, it's Pravita. And is, like, crying over her body. And then we have the camera kind of moving back um, as we crossfade to, like, further and further back and seeing more of the landscape because it's very tragic. And the film ends with the same singer uh, from the beginning singing, uh, but it's more of just an instrumental. She's not saying lyrics, but it's just kind of a nice bookend. So, at a certain point, you know how this movie's going to end. Yes. Like, the the fact that it's Aslak who catches up with her and, like, throws the spear and then she turns into herself, you know, once she's dead and stuff. Like, you know that's the ending that you're going to get, like, a mile away, right? This yes. has a very, like... Like, even if this isn't based on a specific folktale, it has a very authentic-feeling folktale structure. Absolutely, and I think it's a very common structure that we see with shapeshifter stories. Yeah, that's true as well. Like, yeah, if you've seen the Jekyll Wolfman. Jekyll and Hyde, Wolfman, even looking ahead to, like, Werewolf of London. Sure, yeah. Like, the movie ends in the same way. Yeah, absolutely. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this movie is, is super good. Um, I was not expecting it to be this good. I was really impressed with how well they did the filming in the snow. Mm, sure, yeah. Like, they, they shot all this on location. Yeah, and you can obviously tell, because it's, like, many, many long shots of seeing the herd eventually go out of sight. Um, you really get the feeling of the isolation mm -hmm. that Perita feels. Um, I hate the cold <laughs> and winter, and I really felt that here. Um, but also, if you shoot in snow and have to do a retake, you either have to move to a spot where the snow is pristine or have evidence of moving through that snow before. Right. And there are lots of shots where it's clear that this is the first time they've moved through the snow here. It, the fun part about that is Death Valley, where by the end of the movie the reindeer luring people in is like following its earlier tracks. Like there's already tracks going in there. Yeah. Um, they're on location and the landscape features heavily in the film cinematography. It almost feels like every second shot is a shot of the landscape. Yeah. And even like the opening and the ending is so focused on the landscape because mm -hmm. we see the landscape before we see the wolves and before we see the woman. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons why Sarah and I kind of came away with different interpretations of certain scenes is there isn't a lot of dialogue in this movie. Yes. Um, I think that part of that is a pragmatic thing where if you're shooting on location in the windy, snowy climates, um, it's just going to be hard to get clean dialogue sound. So you want to have as little dialogue as possible so you can loop as little dialogue as possible, because I suspect that what dialogue we do here is is ADR. Yeah. Um, uh, that means, like, recorded after the fact. Yeah. Uh, that's sort of, you know, when you are on set and you just can't get 
clean sound. Like if you ever see a movie where the characters are talking and it's raining or talking and they're next to like a freeway or like anything like that, like they are not using the dialogue they record on set. They probably did record dialogue on set and then they use that as a guide track for the actors to come in later and voice over their own lines, right? Yeah. Um, the other thing that the lack of dialogue does, um, other than be pragmatic and also make certain scenes a little ambiguous is it really contributes to the fact that this movie feels like a throwback to silent cinema. Absolutely. I mean, you know, little dialogue, very strong score, and even the acting styles feel a lot like silent film acting, particularly Miyama Kuosmanen, who plays Prita, who definitely is giving, like, a silent film reminiscent performance here. Yeah, but I think because, like, the filmmaking is modern, it doesn't feel dated. Yeah, but there's definitely, like, references here. I mean, yes. there's there's stuff that feels especially like Nosferatu, which is yeah. interesting considering that, like, the director would have been, like, six when Nosferatu came out, and he would have had to have been, like, working off memory of it because it's not like he, you know, booted up Netflix and checked it out before <laughs> making this movie, right? I mean, he might have been able to see it later in life. Um, no, because they destroyed all the copies after the lawsuit. <gasps> and that's the only right. copy that survived was, like, the copies that were in, like, some archives in America and France or whatever, right? right. So, no, he would have absolutely needed to have been going off of his memory of being six years old and seeing it. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to deny that he did see it, uh, especially because of two shots. Yes. Uh, there's a shot of Prita moving through her cabin at night where we just see her shadow moving across like the floor in the light of a window with her hands all gnarled and, you know, um, which is very much just a callback to that shot of Nosferatu's shadow moving up the stairs with his fingers outstretched. Yeah. Which is a very striking visual, which would imprint on a six year old. Yeah. And then when she passes out and is having her visions, uh, when she goes to the stone God the first time, one of the images we see is of a white reindeer moving across the snow but it's actually a dark-furred reindeer moving across the snow where the shot has been turned negative. So it's a white reindeer against black snow. And yeah. that's very reminiscent of the negative footage we see in Nosferatu. Which I think also would have imprinted on a six-year-old. I think that also like makes sense as a way to go to really show a nightmarish version of a white reindeer. Yes. It, from, like, a filmmaking perspective. Yeah, it looks really good. Yeah, but I wasn't convinced of the Nosferatu thing until the fingers outstretched in shadow moment. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for yeah. sure. I don't know how they handled the reindeer. Sure. Both the herds, but also the white reindeer. Mm -hmm. Because it's not acting as if it's trained. Like, with, with trained dogs, you can kind of tell. Sure. Right? It's acting like a wild animal, but it's doing everything they need it to do. Yeah, you wonder if, like, how many takes there were or whatever, or if they just had really good handlers. My suspicion, like, watching the movie, it's clear the director came from this, like, documentary background. Because mm -hmm. the movie kind of does have large stretches of it that still just sort of feel like ethnographic 
film. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if, like, you know, he has his core team of actors, but all of the extras and everything that we're seeing is actually, like, Sami stuff that, like, they're on location with. And so my suspicion is that, like, the reindeer handling was all being done by, like, Sami reindeer herders who knew what they were doing. (laughs) Sure. You know? Kind of to that point, I don't know if any other director could have done this movie. Mm. Because, like, Eric Bloomberry had the experience working with the Sami people mm-hmm. previously, working in this environment previously. Um, any kind of problems with filming against the blinding white snow, mm-hmm. he would have been able to figure out in the documentaries. Yeah, I get the feeling like a lot of this movie was shot with um, ND filters on or the exposure turned way down because something that you see often in this movie is gray snow rather than like white snow Mm -hmm. um which is you would only really get if like yeah you you'd done one of those two things in order to yeah like exactly what you say prevent the the, just completely blown out yeah the snow from overexposing but there's even moments where you can see like the sparkle Mm -hmm. on the snow like freshly fallen snow yeah so it's very impressive in that way as well yeah absolutely Miami Kusmanen gives a really great central performance as yes. Perita. Yeah, she's really good. Um, which is good because we never really get to know any of the other characters beyond their basic archetypes. Yeah. Like, this is very much fairy tale style storytelling to the point where, like, you know, Perita has a name, Aslak has a name, um, the shaman has a name, he's um, Salku, Salkunila or something like that. Uh, but, like, none of these characters had to have names. Like, they could have just been the man, the woman, the shaman, because that's basically what they are, right? Um, so it's really good that Perita is well portrayed. Um, Kusmanen does a lot with her face. Um, again, kind of in that silent movie style, but also yeah. just because, like, the script is so dialogue light. Like, we never really get her saying what her motivations are or speaking what her feelings are out loud. It's all just kind of coming from her nonverbal performance. Yeah. Yeah. She does a really good job. Um, especially with making the two Paritas Mm. distinct enough. Yeah. But not like cartoonishly even. Right. Yeah. 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 They, they're, they sort of, they both come from the same person. One thing that's actually really hard for me to believe, um, even harder than this not being a pre-existing folktale, because it, it emulates that form so well, it's even harder for me to believe that this wasn't a symphony first. Like, mm. like this, like it wasn't like a Peter and the Wolf situation, sure. where like England composed the symphony, and it was like, like watching the movie, if I knew nothing about its background, my guess would be that this was like, a well-known, famous, traditional Finnish symphony based on an even older Finnish folktale that's now been turned into a movie, the same way that you get with things like Swan Lake or whatever, right? Where And then now the symphony's backing the movie. Because a lot of this really does kind of feel like... I mean, the, the orchestra is so prominent through the movie mm-hmm. and drives the action for so much of it and takes the place of dialogue for so much of it, 
that it, you know it does feel like when you're watching like a ballet or something and there are actors acting out the story but it's the music that's propelling them along i would agree um the music paired with the cinematography really makes this feel like a myth yeah or that like i'm being told a, a story by that singing narrator at mm-hmm. the beginning. Like, it really has that feel. And I, yeah, I can't really put into words, like, specifically what it is about the cinematography and the music that manages to do it. Yeah, but it just leaves you with the feeling like, oh, yeah, this is the movie version of this, like, classic, well-known folktale, except that this movie made up its story. Right? Yeah, I even did some quick cursory research after the movie about Sami or Finnish vampires or witches, and I couldn't find anything that was specific that could tie to shape-shifting or anything like that. Yeah, um, the music has a very strong Igor Stravinsky influence to it. Like, it feels very inspired by Rite of Spring. Um, And I know that most people today associate Rite of Spring with dinosaurs because of Fantasia. But the original narrative that Rite of Spring was performed with, it was performed as a ballet. And one of the things about that piece, you'll hear about how controversial it was, part of it was the music itself, but a bigger part of it was the style of ballet it was performed with. Modern, contemporary, like modern is in like um, the dance style, yeah, of contemporary dance, not um, like nineteen fifties dancing it, or whatever. It didn't have that like pretty, delicate, you know, little flowers thing of ballet because what it was dramatizing was um, like supposed to be like different in, tribes, yeah, like indigenous Russian tribal dances, right? It's supposed to be music that backs like pagan rituals and stuff like that. So I can see why someone like England would make the leap from the Rite of Spring to, ah, that's a good musical style to pair with this movie. So I think my big question walking away from this movie is, is this movie pro-female sexual empowerment or anti-female sexual empowerment? Well, see, the thing is, is everything is from Pervita's point of view. Mm -hmm. So I can see why it seems like a gray zone. But the film explicitly is like the evil thing in Perita's mom's belly. Right. And positions Perita as inherently evil as a result. She enjoys being um, flirted with and getting people's looks. Um, even if she's not acting on it, like, she is very, um, sexually motivated. Mm-hmm. That seems like a weird phrase to say. No, but that's totally fair. She wants the sex, Ben. Yes. Perita want to get some. Perita want to get some. Um, and she got more than what she bargained for. Yeah. This is the thing, is like, I think... Because the alternative is to say, like, well... I was like, really, she'd be getting down with her more. Yeah, because, like, the thing is, is, like, you might be tempted watching this movie as you see this, like, strong, powerful, you know, sexually minded female character, like, kill all these men. Like, you know, you might, I think, be kind of tempted here in 2020 to read that as, like, a a female empowerment narrative. Um, But the men don't 
do anything to deserve their fates, right? Like, it's not like we see a bunch of, like, catcalling jackasses who, like, are real sons of bitches or anything. You know, it's not like Aslak, like, turns her down for sex and then, like, she gets up in the middle of the night to go pee or whatever and finds him fucking some other broad. You know, and that was why he's like... But it's so crudely. Oh, you know, I, I, I don't feel like it tonight, honey. Like, it's there's no betrayals here, right? So I think that's a strong point in the favor of the anti-argument. The film also has a really strong central metaphor about wolves and reindeer. Yeah. And this idea of associating, you know, wolves, a predator species, with men sexually... And reindeer, a prey species with women sexually. Um, Perita's mom was chased down by wolves, right, at the start of the film. And when... um, Aslak first, like, goes to kiss Perita, he says, like, the wolf has caught the reindeer. Yeah, the wolf will always be faster than the reindeer, right? And so then with Perita becoming a reindeer that attacks and eats people, there's a definite feeling there of like the natural order of things being subverted that like what she's doing is inherently against the natural order of things, which then reinforces a message of like this sexually dominant active woman who knows what she wants, who's kind of a tomboy and plays with the men is against the natural order of things. Right. Yeah. So that all ties into this like anti female empowerment reading. Um, what makes that kind of more gray, like you said, the whole movie's from Perita's point of view. And the reason she's cursed, at least, you know, the way I interpreted the movie, was not necessarily because she want, you know, she want to get some, but because she had the bad luck of killing a white reindeer as the thing. And, like, that's just a big no-no. And so she got screwed over because of that. So it's like that kind of muddies the waters a bit on, like, like what about her is wrong. Yeah, and I think, like, with my reading of, like, what if the shaman was her first victim, that would have happened before she sacrificed the calf. Right. So it kind of, like, firms up the reading of being anti-female empowerment. Yeah, um... The thing that makes it open to interpretation, again, it's, there's not a lot of dialogue. There is no, like, narrator, like, being like, and so we see what happens when women go against the, you know, like. When women want the dirt. Yeah. um, And it's also like the storytelling is very simplistic. It's very simple fairy tale style storytelling to the point where you have to infer a lot of the, like, psychological motivations of the characters. You know. My biggest frustration with this movie, honestly, is I think the movie's biggest strength is its imagery, what it puts on the screen. Yeah. And its biggest weakness is what it doesn't put on the screen. So I think in wanting to keep, like, a fairy tale feeling to it, the movie is... Like, for a movie about sex and violence, there's surprisingly little of either in the movie, right? All of the killings happen off screen. Yep. Um, other than like Paritas at the end. Yeah. The only um, dead body we see full on is the shamans. Mm-hmm. And and Paritas at the end. Yeah. <laughs> um, and like even her sexual motivations are kind of kept obscure. Like what it literally is is she's sleeping with her husband. She wakes up in the middle of the night. She kind of like looks at him all like 
you know, hungry eyed and tries to like rub his chest and then he turns over on his side away from her and then she goes to see the shaman and he's like, Oh, I, I know what you're here for. Like you want to, you want a man, like I'm, I'm going to make you irresistible. And, you know, we also get all the shots of her being bored and alone at home. You kind of have to connect the dots of like, oh, she's sexually frustrated. There's nothing coming out and saying that. And even after she becomes irresistible to reindeer herders, we never see her like lure a guy in, have sex with him and then kill him. Right. It's all off screen. Um, And that I think contributes to kind of the ambiguity here, even though it is also making it feel like a more authentic folktale. Yeah. Because it's got that folktale thing of like, you get told the story and the story is very simple. It's like, Oh, red riding hood goes off to see her grandma gets confronted by a wolf and she's like, eh, whatever. And then gets to grandma's house and the wolf is eaten grandma and disguised as her. And then the wolf eats red riding hood and you're like, okay, whatever. And then later you become like, you know, a humanities student in university <laughs> and they're like, ah, yes, Red Riding Hood's actually a metaphor for women entering adulthood in their first period. And like the way that men go after women and you're like, wait, sorry, it is. Yeah. And that's kind of like what's going on here too, where it's like, you kind of have to see what's between the lines. Counterpoint or rather uh, an alternative view mm. in line with this is the power that that vagueness gives. Sure. Because of being able to reinterpret that folktale. This film is vague, and you could read it as female empowerment. Right. um, And the patriarchy getting her down at the end. Yeah, exactly. Like, it could be that, like, she doesn't die because she was wrong. She dies because, like, the patriarchy is, like, something too big for you know, one witch reindeer to take down on her own. (laughs) Yeah, that's why witch reindeer need to unionize, come together, labor movement. Right, yeah. I mean, you know, you need a whole team of witch reindeer, right? You know? Not one reindeer can pull a single sled. Right, exactly. Although we see that multiple times. Yeah, Um, coming up with labor sleds No, no, for sure. I think the other thing that confuses, to me, the film's theme of whether it's you know, for or against women, is that um, Kusmanen co-wrote the script and she came up with the idea for the story, right? And so I'm sitting here and I'm like, okay, was she trying to be, like, saying that female sexuality is bad and shouldn't be encouraged? Like, that's a little, like, it's it's odd. But then I'm also thinking, well, but she also plays Perita, So was she less thinking about what the movie's theme was and more thinking of like, oh, this is a really juicy role to play that I'm giving myself? I think the juicy role. Mm. um, I don't think she was sitting down and being like, okay, what kind of themes do we want here? I think they sat down and they were like, okay, we want to tell um, a little bit of a mythic story or a story adapting a myth or a legend and maybe a bit more of a folkloric nature to it. Um, oh, they tend to have this type of formula, what would look kind of cool in that, and kind of going like that. I don't think they were purposefully trying to make a statement either way. Yeah. That being said, it can contribute either way Mm -hmm. to, for, or against female sexual empowerment. Yes. I I am inclined to agree with you that that it was, the motivation was let's make... A cool, a cool fairy tale movie, yeah. kind of first, yeah. and they absolutely achieved that. Mm-hmm. Do you want to move on to ranking? Yeah. 
So in picking out my range, um, I went looking for Vampire. I did too! Yeah, that was the movie that this most kind of reminded me of. Well, because it's like a silent film. But not. But not, yeah. Only I feel like Vampire is more nightmarish, whereas this is more folklorish. Yeah, or like... Folkloric? Folkloric. Yeah. Um, Yeah, or like Nightmare versus Dream, if that distinction makes sense to you. Sure. I can see that. So I went looking for Vampire. I think Vampire is superior to this movie as a horror movie. Okay. Um, I think that it is putting more effort into the horror. This is definitely a horror movie, but it's like more a folk tale or a fairy tale, right? Than like it's the it's the way that like you can tell fairy tales in a way to emphasize the horror because a lot of fairy tales have horrific stuff in them. Or you can tell them to, like, de-emphasize. And I feel like this movie's kind of, like, right on the line with sure. that. Which is one of the things that gives it that, like, fake authenticity. Uh, so I thought Vampire was better. So I started looking below Vampire. And there's a lot of strong stuff below Vampire. And what stood out to me was The Queen of Spades at number 35. Uh, which one? The 1949 Queen of Spades. Thanks, yeah. Yeah, with um, Anton Wahlberg. And... I think Queen of Spades is better than this. I think Queen of Spades is spookier than this movie. And I think it's curse and the negative consequences that happen to its lead character and the morality that it's talking about is a lot clearer than this movie. So I think my ceiling would be number 36 above the maze below Queen of Spades because I did look at the maze and I was like... "Mm." You know, I love Frog Boy, but, like, Frog Boy's a little silly. (laughs) So you prefer reindeer over frogs. Yeah. And then um, looking, you know, down the list to see, okay, what is this definitely better than? Um, I came to, it came from Outer Space at number 49, which is, like, a fun movie, but, like, is kind of um, a little silly and a little dumb. It's a really cool alien design but it's also like little silly and a little dumb yeah exactly um so my range is 36 to 49 okay um so like i said i i also started with vampire and that movie is hard to for me to follow right the white reindeer was not hard for me to follow so I was actually looking above Vampire. Yeah, I had a feeling um, you and I definitely like have different opinions when it comes to Vampire. <laughs> above Vampire, there's Nosferatu mm-hmm. at 24. Yeah. You know, I think it's very apt to compare it to Nosferatu. The Nosferatu has a lot of iconic value, but it does meander a bit. It has that whole running around sequence. But I wasn't really sure, because it does have that iconic value, and how much does that weigh against a film like The White Reindeer, where, you know, I think they could have made this film without having seen Nosferatu. Mm -hmm. Um, But they definitely took a lot from Nosferatu. Yeah. So, I was was kind of torn. I knew that it wasn't going to go above things like, like The Wolfman at number 20. Sure. So I was kind of looking between 24 to 31, Nosferatu to Vampire. But looking down to where you are, like what's between... Vampire and Queen of Spades. Yeah, there's... Below Vampire is Seventh Victim, 
The Uninvited, House of Wax, Queen of Spades. And yeah, I see where you're coming from with Queen of Spades. Yeah, and I think, like, The Uninvited is stronger than this as well. I think, you know, it's it's part of it is that, like, old good movie versus good horror movie debate that we get into sometimes. Um, um, the White Reindeer really controls the tension for me. It really controls all of that. Like, I was just completely, like, enraptured by it. I wasn't, like, sitting... And kind of tapping my toe, like, waiting for the next scene or anything like that. It's been a while since we've had, like, one of these um, artsy horror movies, you know (laughs) what I mean? That we used to get a lot, like, before World War II. Yeah, like Um, the French House of Usher. Yeah, or like um, Fairman Maria and, like, stuff like that. So, you know, it was kind of cool to get, like, some of that European horror. I can definitely see the, like, line that you could draw from this to folk horror. Yeah, which I think is super cool. Like, I, I, I really like this movie. I really like folk horror. Yeah, I know you do. Um, <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, let me pose you something. Mm-hmm. Below Seventh Victim, Above the Uninvited. Let me counterpropose Below the Uninvited, Above House of Wax. I'm willing... I don't... Hmm. I mean, listen... House of Wax is very angry. House of Wax is very lurid, and the White Reindeer is more subtle. And I know that there are people who prefer lurid horror, and it definitely has its time and its place, and it's a lot of fun. I think on this show, we've definitely shown a preference for more subtle horror by showing that, like, the Bela Lugosi Dracula is ranked above the Carlos Villarreal Dracula. So I'm, as much as, like, I think I prefer Queen of Spades to this, you know, and I said that and stuff like that. And, and, you know, it's very hard to directly compare House of Wax to this movie. They're after very different things. And also putting this movie above House of Wax does feel a little bit pretentious because like, this is clearly the like (laughs) artsy, fartsy, respectable horror and House of Wax is clearly like some like lowest common denominator stuff. And like, I don't want to say that we're against lowest common denominator stuff, but that's kind of where I'm willing to go, is is above House of Wax, below The Uninvited. The Uninvited had ghosts. Yeah, this had, like, demon reindeer, Ben. <laughs> Vampire were-reindeer, yes. Yeah, I just keep thinking of, like, House of Wax's, like, ping-pong and can-can sequence mm-hmm. as, like, making me feel justified in this, so... Yeah, I agree with putting it above House of Wax. Yeah. Okay, let's do that. I think that's a good compromise. Okay. So entering the list at the new number 34, a very high entry, uh, given that the mid-range of the list is somewhere in the 80s these days, uh, it's The White Reindeer, or Velkoinen Peora, from 1952, directed by Eric Bloomberry. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeal box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box there. You can email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever you want to subscribe using our RSS feed. 
You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, the more reviews and ratings we get, the more the podcast is featured in the algorithm. You can also help us out by telling people about us. It's September, and look, it's late September, and look, I know it's 2020, and time has no meaning, and we're all really worried about how, like, it's... Register to vote if you're in the States. Yeah. Uh, and like vote now, like, like go and vote now if your state has like early voting, but like, you can take your mail-in ballots and take them physically in person to a place. Yeah. If you're in a state that allows that. Um, so I know we're all worried about like the global pandemic and the world being on fire and like the rise of like fascism, but it is Halloween season soon. So, you know, if you have the time to be into spooky things and your friends have the time to be into spooky things and you want to get your friends' minds off of all that stuff I just talked about and onto... Like, real-life scary things and onto, like, things that don't matter that can be scary. Right. Like, you know, spiders and witches and... Spiders are legitimate scary. Black Widow spiders, Ben. So, you can tell your friends about our podcast if you want them to know things about classic horror movies and be able to have discussions with you about those classic horror movies you love, uh, share the show with them on Twitter, on Facebook, on Tumblr, on whatever horrible internet trap you are stuck in. Uh, or you can do it in person from, you know, six feet away wearing a mask. Finally... If you have the financial stability to do so, we recommend you head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash ScreamScenePodcast, uh, where you can sign up to become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at higher levels, like the $5 and $10 level, get access to bonus content. And of course, with it being October coming up, being Halloween coming up, we'll be doing some special bonus content like we do every year. Uh, there's a poll up on our Patreon right now. Um, I haven't checked what option is winning. Last I checked, everyone just wanted everything. Which, like, <laughs> listen, folks, I understand. I understand. But, like, but we we're don't human. have the time. Uh, so if you want to do that, uh, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? We kind of went back in time for this. Yeah, so we're going to slowly move forward towards the present while still remaining back in time. Uh, Listener Nicholas Harold sent me an email with some suggestions. And you're not going to like them. uh, But, (laughs) because they were all spider-themed horror movies. Great. Uh, So the first one we're going to be checking out is called Mesa of Lost Women. Uh, it's an extremely indie American sci-fi horror movie. Like sex maniac level indie? Uh, I mean, not like in the exploitation circuit, but like definitely, hey, this guy with some money showed up out of nowhere and bought like, like the, room level, star, the room level indie okay. is what I'll say. Okay. A mysterious dude shows up out of nowhere with some money and <laughs> decides to make an opus level indie. Oh boy. Uh, yeah. So that's Mesa of Lost Women from 1953. It is definitely in the like batch of movies that get worst film of all time thrown around about them. So I'm looking forward to the experience. 
We will see you next week, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.